0: Two practices, just think what they're going to be like in a few more weeks, man. That is just great. Thank you, guys. That was great. (laughs) Stories told of a young man who went out and bought himself a Ferrari Testarossa, one of the most expensive cars that are out on the market, one of the most incredible sports cars that have ever been manufactured he was out taking it for a spin, and he came into a red light. And at the red light, alongside him, along his driver's door, pulled up a moped with an older gentleman on it. He was about 90. The moped was about 110. And, uh, you know, I was looking at this car, and and he knocked on the window, and the guy put the window down, and he looked inside and said, man, this is a really nice car. What kind of car is it? He said, this is a Ferrari Testarossa. It's one of the most uh, expensive and one of the quickest cars ever manufactured. It cost a half a million bucks. And the old guy looked in the window and said, Wow, can I, can I look inside? And he kind of leaned over and he looked inside and said, Man, this is a pretty nice car. And just then the light turns green and this guy thought, Wow, I'm going to show this old guy what this car is all about. And he just hit it, man. And he just took off and he went flying down the road. Within like 30 or 60 seconds, he had been up over 180 to 200 miles an hour. And as he stopped and he kind of smiled and, you know, proud of himself, he looked in his rearview mirror and he saw this little dot. This little dot was coming, coming at him quick. And he's looking at that dot, trying to figure out what's going on. All of a sudden, the dot's all on him, and it went flying by driver's side. And he looked over, and it was a blur. But Man, it looked like the guy in the moped. And he just sat there kind of stunned. And all of a sudden, he sees him coming back this way again. He goes flying back again. And he goes, man, what in the world's going on? And he looks in the rearview mirror, and here he comes again for the third time. But this time, he doesn't go past him. He goes right in the back and slams in the back of his Ferrari. And he's laying on the street, and the guy can't figure out what in the world's going on. he goes out, and he looks at him and says, you know, are are you all right? Is there anything I can do for you? And he looked at him and said, well, you could take my suspenders from your your side view mirror. (laughs) You know, sometimes life is just like that, isn't it? You know, the point is this Ferrari owner was convinced his car was the fastest vehicle on wheels until something went flying by him. And then he began to doubt what he had thought he knew. Every one of us have been there at some point in our life or another where we begin to doubt those things that we think that we know. Convinced that we know them, our confidence and our understanding becomes swayed by doubt. And, uh, and that's the, the backdrop of the passage that we'll examine today in Luke's account of the life of Jesus. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 7, where we learn the secret to overcoming doubt in our life. Luke chapter 7, we pick up the account at verse 18. It says, and the disciples of John reported to him, speaking of Jesus, about all of these things. And summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? And at that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits. And he granted sight to many who were blind. And he answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. And when the messengers of John had left, he began to speak to the multitudes about John, saying, What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he." And when all the people and the tax gatherers heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. To what then shall I compare the men of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another, and they say, we played the flute for you, and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say to him, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by all of her children. Our previous study ended with the declaration that a report, if you look at verse 17, a report concerning Jesus had gone about the whole area all about Judea and all the surrounding districts. The word that's translated report, as I mentioned, is the word logos, which basically means that there is an intellectual or an intelligent information that was being passed. What was being told about Jesus was intellectually, intelligently clear and accurate. And what it means is that in our vernacular, what we would say is that people were starting to get it. They were starting to understand who Jesus is and what he had come to do. And so they were beginning to get it. And as we look at this, we see that this statement, however, is immediately followed by a story which shows how, uh, how imperfect was that understanding. In this particular passage, in order to better examine it more fully, we've broken it down. I've broken it down into four, four points that we'll look at. The first one we see in verses 18 through 20, where we read about the confusion of John the Baptist. Notice again, it says, "...and the disciples of John reported to him about all of these things." And summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the expecting, expected one or do we look for someone else? And when the men had come to him, they said to him, John has sent us to you saying, Are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? As Jesus' ministry began to expand, that of John the Baptist literally became confined. Straight shooting John, a guy who told it the way it was, according to the truth of God's word, was put into prison because he had called out Herod for his adulterous relationship with Herodias, who was at one time his sister-in-law. And he just said, hey, man, what you're doing is wrong before God. You need to repent of your actions because what you're doing is wrong. And as you can imagine, he didn't like hearing that. And he had the power and the ability and he threw him into prison. And John finds himself in prison because of this situation. And as he is in prison, he began to think about the things that he had been telling people about Jesus you know, many have said it's because, you know, John was depressed. Some have said because, you know, it's been difficult for him. And you can imagine a guy who spent all of his life out in the wilderness now being confined to a dark and, and, and dingy cell of some sort with with hooks and chained to him. And, you know, he can still go there today to see the remains of that prison. And, and, and the bottom line is, is that they thought, well, you know what, he was depressed, kind of having an Elijah thing going for him where the opposition have arisen. And some of us have been there as, you know, as you keep taking hits from all different sides. And it's kind of like we go through that Elijah complex where oh woe is me I'm the only one on the face of the earth that experienced this kind of you know opposition and you know personally I don't believe that that was John's situation at all though you know it, it makes for a good story but at the end of the day when we read the text it tells us very clearly in verse 18 exactly what it was that created this confusion in the mind of John and he said and the disciples of John reported to him about all of these things. Well, what were those things that were being reported to John about the ministry of Jesus? Well, we've already seen it. You know, John's disciples ran to him and said, Man, you should see what Jesus is doing. You know, he's healing those uh, who've had afflictions. You know, he, he, most recently we just studied that you know, he raised the widow's son from the dead. He was curing all these ailments. He was casting out demons. He he was helping those who had physical problems. And here he was. He was raising someone from the dead, the widow's son. And they reported all these things to him, that logos or that understanding. This is what Jesus is doing. And John was confused by that because he had also said that Jesus, the Messiah, when he came, would establish the kingdom of God. He was confused because he didn't really understand what it was that God was doing. And he was trying to put it all together and make some sense out of it. On on one hand, you know, Jesus' marvelous miracles fit well with John's prophecy regarding the great work the Holy Spirit would do through Jesus. But in regard to his prophecy of judgment, if you recall, John said that, that Jesus, the Messiah, when he came, would burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And that hadn't happened. In fact, he couldn't understand what was going on. You know, think about it. Jesus came to set the captives free, and I'm in jail. I don't get it. I thought, you know, he came to establish his kingdom, and people like Herod are still in control. And all those, you know, the Roman government is still there. We're still being oppressed. And on top of all of these things, you know, I see these acts of great mercy and these great love, but I don't see any justice. I don't see any judgment. And so John began to doubt. But there is a tremendous difference between doubt and unbelief. Doubt is a matter of the mind. It's when we can't understand what God is doing or why he is doing it. And we struggle with the comprehension of all of that. Unbelief, on the other hand, is a matter of the will. We refuse, no matter what the evidence, to believe God's word and obey what it is that he tells us to do. It's one thing to doubt. It's another thing to have unbelief. You know, as I was thinking about that, I was reminded, if you'll turn with me to John chapter 20, a passage where many of us are familiar with a a fellow by the name of Thomas who we've tagged Doubting Thomas. And you know what? And I've learned to appreciate Doubting Thomas a little bit more as I've looked at the whole concept of what it means to doubt versus what it means to be guilty of unbelief. Doubt is confusion, Doubt is a matter of the mind. We can't understand what it is that God is doing. Where unbelief, no matter what the evidence shows, I refuse to believe. It's a matter of our will. It's a matter of our heart. And in John chapter 20, the account that we see in verse 19, we pick up where it says, When therefore it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, And when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. This is after his crucifixion and his burial. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side, and the disciples therefore rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus therefore said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any their sins have been forgiven if you retain the sins of any they have been retained but Thomas one of the 12 called Didymus was not with them when Jesus came and the other disciples therefore were saying to him we've seen the lord but he said to them unless i see his hands unless i see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side i will not believe and after eight days again, his disciples were inside, and Thomas was with them. And Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. I want to set the stage for what has taken place here. You know, think about this for a moment. Thomas isn't there. Jesus appears to the disciples. They say to Thomas, who didn't, wasn't there to see it, they said, Hey, we saw Jesus. He's alive. He is here. We spoke with him. He spoke to us. We saw him. And Thomas said, You know what? I, I don't really believe what you guys are saying. And I wonder why. They weren't the most credible people in the world. Think about it. He knew they were deserters, that they were deniers. It's like, you know what? I'm not so sure that I would have believed what they said. And so what he was saying was, you know what? I really doubt your story. You're not the most credible guys in the world at this point in history. And so until I see him myself, until I see those wounds, until I touch them, then you know what? Then I will not believe. He doubted the story. He doubted their credibility. But at the same time, Jesus appears in verse 26 and says to Thomas, reach here your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side and be not unbelieving but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Summed it up. That was it. See, Thomas was not guilty of the sin of unbelief because when the evidence was presented to him, he immediately recognized and worshiped Jesus as the Savior, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. And I, and I love that because doubt is not always a sign that a man is wrong. It may be a sign that he's thinking. And there's nothing wrong with thinking. The word logos means to have an understanding, to think through that which you've just seen. I've seen Jesus raise those who couldn't walk. I've seen him open the eyes of the blind. I've seen him open up the ears of those who are deaf. You know, I've seen him raise the dead back to life. I'm thinking about all this. I'm processing this. What does this really mean? What does the Bible say? What did God say he would do? He's doing that which he said he would do. These things have never been done in the history of the world. I I see what he's doing. I'm thinking about it. I'm processing it. I have my doubts, but you know what? I'm taking it all in. And what I want to share with you, and I want to encourage you to recognize and understand, we live in a world where there are doubters and unbelievers. And we need to recognize that we are there to help the doubters no longer doubt by by giving them evidence of what it is that we say that we believe. And those who are unbelievers who will refuse to believe, there's nothing that we're going to do for them other than pray for them that God would continue to soften their hearts. Because it doesn't matter what you share with them. It doesn't matter how you live before them. It doesn't matter what the evidence, because I refuse to believe. God help those with such hearts. That's why we always pray, God, soften the hearts of those that you will bring into our life, that we can share God's truth with them, so that those who doubt may be convinced to put their faith and trust in the same Savior whom we've come to know. My question for you is this, though, and it's uh, rather personal and somewhat convicting, and that is, do you make a credible witness? Do you make for a credible witness? I mean, if somebody looks at your life and they say, well, you know what, you're not exactly the most credible person to listen to about spiritual truth because I see how you live and I hear what you say and the two just don't line up with each other. And so, therefore, you're not going to be able to help my doubts at all. In fact, if anything, you create even more doubts in my mind. God, help us to never be the cause of doubt or a stumbling block to those who are genuinely interested in understanding who God is and what His plan is for our lives. In one, one Bible study that I'm currently doing with a young man who plays for the Mighty Ducks, I've encouraged him to get answers to all of his doubts. He comes with a bunch of questions, and I love it. Hey, w- w- you know, what are you, what are you questioning? What are you struggling with? You know, let's get the answers. None of us should ever be content on not having questions answered that we have in our own minds about the faith that we claim to believe. May we never be lazy people who just kind of go, yeah, well, I thought about that, but you know, I really haven't had have time to check it out. I haven't really had time to get into it. I haven't had time to find the answer. Man, it's something that's there, but you know, hey, you know what? Don't, don't be content with unanswered questions in your life regarding your faith and what you claim to believe. Because the moment you run into someone who asks you a question and it's the same question that you have and you haven't got an answer, you become a stumbling block to that person. And there have been many times in my life where I said, man, you know what, that's a great question. Let me check into it. Let me look into it. Let me check into the Bible. Let me get an answer for you. And the next time that we meet next week, you know what, then we'll we'll look at that and we'll get an answer. You know, you think about the tremendous advantage that we have today that John did not have. We have the complete Word of God. And John was doubting what was going on because he didn't really understand and he didn't get it yet. John announced judgment, but he saw Jesus doing deeds of love and mercy. John had promised the kingdom of God was at hand, but there was really no evidence that Jesus was establishing God's kingdom. You know, John had heard Jesus say he came to set the captives free, as I mentioned, and there he was in prison. So it's like, how is all this working out? You know, John had presented Jesus as the Lamb of God, so he must have understood something about his sacrifice, but he he couldn't relate the judgment to it. He didn't really understand it because it had not yet occurred. And so he had many questions. And I can relate to that, and I hope that you can too. Because we need to constantly be questioning so that we get answers to those questions or those doubts. I mean, I mentioned to you, I had a question about, okay, God, what, what exactly are you doing? You've moved us into this position as a church. You've brought this property to us. We're in the middle of talking about buying a piece of property and moving to a new facility. And then all of a sudden, I got a lump in my groin and it's cancer. And it's like, you know, I don't understand that. What are you doing? What are you doing? Is it a stop sign and as a board we prayed about it, is it a stop sign? Is it your way of saying stop? Or you know, is it just an obstacle of the enemy who's trying to stop or thwart the plans and purposes of God? Or as I've had a chance to process it and filter through it and, and pray about it and study the word of God, I've become personally convinced that God answered my prayer. And my prayer wasn't, oh God, you know, I'm thinking cancer would be cool. That wasn't it. <laughs> You know, but but my prayer was, God, you know I, I i don't I don't want to mess this up, and whatever you think you need to do to keep me close to you so that I don't wander very far, then you do whatever you have to do, and I'm learning to be a lot more specific in my prayer life <laughs> from all of this but 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 it's an answer to prayer. And so I praise God as Paul praised God in Second Corinthians 12 where he said, You know, I got this affliction, Lord, and if it's okay with you, it would be great with me if you remove it from me. And he prayed and he asked God three different times and God said, No, you know what, I'm not going to remove it from you because my, my grace is sufficient for you because in this time of weakness, others will see my strength perfected through you. So he said, "I most most gladly be content in my weaknesses, that God's strength may be evident through me." And I praise God for that, so that I don't boast in myself, but I boast in Christ. And it's a beautiful thing. It's very painful at this particular point. I got, you know, someone said, "How you doing?" I said, "I got a little hitch in my get along, but at least I got to get along." You know, so, you know, I'm still getting along, but, you know, it's just, okay, God, you know, whatever it is. And, and I can relate to the questions that John had as he was considering the ways of God. He was a man who had doubt, but he wasn't a man who was guilty of unbelief. He was a man who had questions, but you know what God tells us when we have questions? Come to me. If any of you lack wisdom, come to me, and I will give it to you generously, generously and above reproach. I'll never turn you away. I'll never say, what are you, stupid? You should know this by now. Hey, this is the same God that says we're all like sheep. He already knows we're all stupid. You know, He already knows we struggle with questions. He already knows we don't have the answers. He already knows we got to go to Him. He already, you know, He understands that. So we can go to Him and, and with boldness and confidence, because we can enter the throne room of God because of the mercy and grace that God has showed us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross and His resurrection. and those of us who have repented from sin and believed upon Him, the Bible says we have access to the very throne room of God, that we can come and say, "Father, God, Dad, I need some advice. I need some help. I need some counsel." I need to understand what it is that you want me to know so that I don't miss the lessons that you're trying to teach me. And I hope that's where you are. And I hope you always go to him for answers. And you know what? Think about it. Where did John send his disciples to get the answers? He sent them to Jesus. He said, go to Jesus for clarity in our times of confusion. And I say to you, go to the word of God. Go to the very throne room of God. For clarity in the time of your confusion. Because he will make our paths straight. Trusting in him with all of our heart. And leaning not on our own understanding. Acknowledging him in all of our ways. And he will set our paths straight. And what he was saying was, are you the one back in Luke 7? Are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? And we're, It literally means do we look for someone else of, of, the, of, us, of the same kind? Someone else who is doing the things that you're doing, but also won't act a judgment. You know, what do we got going on here? And the answer is given, the confirmation of, by Jesus is given in verses 21 through 23, where he says, At that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he granted sight to many who were blind. He answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And he said, And blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. The confirmation by Jesus, I want you to notice, Jesus didn't give the men a lecture on theology or prophecy. Instead, he invited them to watch as he healed many people of many different afflictions. In simple terms, he allowed the evidence... To speak for itself. I mean, I I don't know about you, but man, one changed life, one changed life is worth more than a thousand words, more than a thousand words. And when they saw what Jesus did, they sat back and watched, and it didn't happen instantly as much as every person that has a need came forth. Kind of like when God said to Adam, hey, name the animals, You know, there's a learning process going there. Hey, you picking up on something? Everybody's got someone but you. Picking up on that? And as Jesus began to heal them, they saw with their own eyes overwhelming evidence that they could not refute. They saw the evidence. And we've seen it all through the Gospel of Luke, all the different times that Jesus had healed those who had afflictions. Once Jesus had healed all these folks, he then gave an explanation and I want you to notice he said go and report back what you've seen and heard The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Jesus' explanation was filled with the word of God, not only because he is the word of God, and everything he speaks is the word of God, but he quoted the word of God, and there's four different passages from Isaiah that he quotes in the answer that he gives. Look at what I've just done. That's exactly what God's word said would happen when his Savior came, his Redeemer. And I'm doing those things that God said what would happen. Go back and tell John that I have fulfilled the word of God. I have fulfilled scripture. The explanation that was there. Jesus was about to send John's disciples back with overwhelming empirical and scriptural evidence that he was and is the expected one. I'm always troubled when I hear people say that Jesus never claimed to be God. I'm always troubled by that. I say, well, are you serious? Are you a doubter or are you an unbeliever? If I can show you that Jesus most definitely claimed to be God through Scripture, will you change your mind about that which you claim to believe? And, you know, we got people that knock on the door, and they come in various sizes, shapes, and colors. And, you know, and, and, and we got people that will come, and they'll say, hey, you know, this is what we believe. And I, and I ask them the question, do you believe that Jesus is God? And inevitably, the majority of those people that are out there, unfortunately, are not evangelical Christians who are out reaching the neighborhoods. It's everybody else. And they say, "Um, we believe he is a God. No, I didn't ask you. I said, do you believe that he's God? Not a God, not one of many gods. Do you believe he's God? Well, no. And then they say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Because one of the arguments I'll use with a certain group is to say, hey, listen, you know what, Uh, you know, do you believe that a liar... ...can become a God. And they say, oh, absolutely not. Do you, well, is Jesus a God? Well, yes, he is. If I can show you that, you know, Jesus then is a liar... ...based on what you're saying, then he couldn't be a God. He either is God or, as, as, the, as the argument goes... ...he's Lord, liar, or lunatic. That's, that's the only choices that we have. And you can say, look, and I'll give you passages. Even before Abraham existed, John 8, I am. What is he saying? And they say, oh, well, you know, and they don't have an answer. They say, well, the response by the people recognized what he was saying. He claimed to be God, Jehovah God. Here's the account from Exodus. As, as Moses went to Pharaoh, tell him, I am sent you. Jesus said before Abraham existed, I am. And the people picked up rocks, the religious leaders, to stone him to death for claiming to be God. That's what he said. Here's another passage that we look at. It say, I fulfilled scripture. I am the expected one. I am the Christ. I am the Savior of the world. He said it to the woman at the well. He says, the one who is speaking to you, I am he. I'm the one you've been waiting for. I am. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, for I and the Father am one. Jesus most definitely claimed to be God. Before sending John's disciples back to John, he gives them one final exhortation. If you'll notice that in verse 23, he says, And blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. Some translations said, "Blessed is he who is not offended by me, who is not who doesn't stumble over me." The word is used of the words that was used of a bait that was put in a trap, and what he is saying is this: Blessed are those who are not stumbling or caught up in a trap that is really a scheme or strategy of our enemy. In, a, in Ephesians chapter six, we're told to be on alert to the schemes or strategies of the devil. There are certain schemes or strategies. He has a game plan. He has strategies that he uses to, to confuse people, not to understand the truth of God. What is one of those strategies? Well, we know that one of his strategies is he always makes the worse appear the better. If you do it this way, there'll be a better result than if you do it the way God says to do it. One of his schemes or strategies is to call into question the reliability, the trustworthiness of God's word. It happened from the very beginning in the garden. Surely God didn't say to you, you can't eat of the tree that's in the center of the the garden. Surely he didn't say that. You must have misunderstood. Because why would he give you everything else and not let you eat that? That doesn't make any human sense. It doesn't make any sense. Therefore, it must not be right. So therefore, do what you want to do. His strategy is always to call into question the reliability and the trustworthiness of God's Word so that we doubt that Word, not even to doubt it so that we would dig into it and find answers, but that we would begin to not believe it so that we can live any way that we want to live. The scheme or strategies, there's nothing new. As I've always said, you know, God, the, the, the strategy of our, of our enemy is to, to lead us, entice us into sin, which is a violation against God's standards. It's to get us to do what's wrong by promising us something that he calls good. To do what's wrong before God with some temporary reward. And I've always said this sin will take you further than you want to go, it'll keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and it'll cost you more than you were ever willing to pay. And that's one of the schemes or strategies. Well, here we're introduced to another scheme or strategy. And what is that scheme or strategy? It's a, it's a bait. It's a bait that has a fatal trap. And the bait is this. To call into doubt what God is doing because you and I don't understand it. Just because you and I don't understand it doesn't mean that that's what God's doing. Our understanding isn't required... For God to be God and do what he wants to do. And the scheme or strategy or the trap is this. If you can't understand it, it must not be from God. Therefore, don't believe it. That's not true. That's not true at all. There are many things that are of God that we don't understand, but we're called to believe it because the evidence is overwhelming in the Word of God that He's trustworthy. In Him there is no darkness. He can't sin. He can't lie. He can't lead us into deception. He can't lead us to do that which is wrong. How do we discern the difference between God's voice and the voice of the enemy or even our own, uh, our own lusts, as James talks about? We discern by going to the Word of God, the tiebreaker for every question that we have in life. And coupled with the conviction of the Holy Spirit who lives within the heart of every believer, we are, we are led and guided into all truth because God has revealed his truth to us. See, the trap is, and what he's saying, the exhortation is this, and Jesus, in the form of a beatitude, encourages him, and this is derived from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 14 and 15. He says, Blessed is a man who doesn't fall away, who, or who doesn't stumble, who is not offended on account of me. What he's saying is, John You and anyone else like you will be blessed if you don't fall away because of your disappointment with the way I choose to work. Blessed are you. And John took it to heart and remained steadfast till the end. John's not the only one who ever felt puzzled or even disappointed with Jesus. I run into many people today who say that they cannot believe in Jesus if spiritual salvation is his main interest, their interests are political, their interests are economic. I've seen people who profess to be Christians fall away when they didn't get the marriage partner that they hoped for, they weren't healed of the disease that they were afflicted with, and when they didn't, you know, and, and when they felt that the, they they didn't get the prosperity also. I had a fellow that used to come every week. And deliver his check, his tithe, to make sure that we got it every week. He'd take it and deliver it, hand deliver it. And uh, I, I, was, I was curious. It was interesting to me that someone would make that kind of effort to do that. And I said, what, what, you know, I, you can drop it off on Sunday. We got the boxes in the back. I mean, wh- why do you hand deliver it? He said, well, you know what? I've never given. I've never believed in giving. I've never believed in tithing. I've never believed in any of that. But I had a friend of mine, a Christian friend, who said, you know what? And I'm struggling in my business. Financially, my life is a disaster. And he said, you know, you you need to just... Return to God just a percentage of what God gives you and it will help your priorities to get straight. And the Bible says in Malachi, test me in these things and see if the, 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 the floodgates of heaven won't be opened up for you in that area of your life. And so his motivation was, okay, God, I'm going to give you X amount of dollars, and I'm counting on the promises that the floodgates of heaven will open up, and so I'm counting on you, you know, not only giving back to me what I give you, but giving me a whole bunch more than I had, and I want to see if that's the case. And you know what? God's not mocked by that foolishness. He says that, you know what, you'll be blessed, but it doesn't always mean that it's going to be, you know, you give God a dollar, he'll give you ten back. But one thing that Jesus made clear when Peter said, what do we get out of all this? We've left everything. We're following you. He said, listen, no matter what you've given up this side of eternity, it'll be restored to you a hundredfold in the kingdom of God. You know, Don't even worry about it because you'll be so blown away by what God has in store for each of his people when he returns and establishes his kingdom. He said, don't even worry about it. But you know what I noticed? I I haven't seen that guy in a long time. And uh, and if you're here, you know... (laughs) You know, it's just, but I didn't name names, so there you go. So a whole bunch of people, every week I got people going, is he talking about me? Is he talking about me? Who's that? That's that God. That's God just dealing with you where you are. It's the most wonderful thing in the world. The word of God is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Bang, just get you right where you are. Don't even know who you are most of the time. God knows who we are. So you deal with God. And, and uh, But I'm still going to keep those bodyguards <laughs> that I was talking about, <laughs> just in case. But, but, you know, but, but that's what happens when people misunderstand how God does things. And so that's what he was saying is, you know what, don't, don't stumble. Don't be offended over how I choose to do things. Keep trusting in me. And John did. It's an important for us to understand. Notice the ascending values of his message. He says, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. And the most important thing is, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. You know what? God isn't in the business of economic prosperity. He's not in the business of political reform. He's not in the business of healing people of their physical ailments only to have them suffer an eternity separated from God in hell. God is in the business of transforming lives. And the most important part of his message is, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. The poor of spirit, the broken and contrite of heart, the most important message. And as I run into people all the time who have physical ailments and God has opened a huge door of opportunity through all of this, you know, it, it doesn't matter. Look, if God heals you of your cancer, if God heals you of your heart affliction, if God heals you of whatever it is that ails you, you're still going to die one day. All that it is is that it buys you a little bit more time and the whole purpose of time here on earth is that we come to know the God who has created us. And how do we do that? We recognize that we're sinners. That we fall short of God's perfection. And we repent and we turn from sin and we turn to God and we trust His way of how He's going to do this. And He says, And I love you and I sent Christ to die on the cross for you in your place. He died and He was buried and He rose again three days later. And if you'll trust in Him, if you'll put your faith in Him, if you'll, not get, if you'll not stumble into that fatal trap of unbelief, if you will believe what God has to say, then you will be forgiven of your sins and become a child of God to those who believe in His way. See, the message of God's church is that I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation, to the Jew first and to all who believe. The message of this church is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Political reform, economic reform, all those things that come, let me tell you something, a lot of times those are a byproduct of what? Of changed lives. But God is in the business of changing lives, one life at a time. Has he changed yours? Are you born again by the will of God and not by your own efforts? Don't let the enemy deceive you into believing that you're a good person because you're not. Don't let the enemy deceive you into believing that all roads lead to heaven as long as you're sincere. That's nonsense. It's not true. Don't let the enemy deceive you into believing anything other than the truth of God's word. It's by grace that we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It is a gift from God so that none of us can ever boast. Notice the commendation of John by Jesus, because as we see, there was probably some questions in their mind. It's like, wow, you know, what's going on with John? And it's, you know, is Jesus slamming John here? And he goes, no, not at all. And he says, and when the messengers of John had left, he began to speak to the multitudes about John. He said, what did you go out into the wilderness to look at a reed that was shaken by the wind? What he was saying is that what did you go to see? There's reeds all along the seashore. You see reeds all the time. And he took something that they understood and said, and you know how they blow in the wind all the time? Did you go out into the wilderness to see a guy who would be blown in the wind? A person who would be a compromiser, who would just go with the flow? Oh, Herod's in in office now. Well, I'll just do whatever i got to do. Oh, Rome. Well, when in Rome, do as the Romans. You know, it's like, you know, we're always trying to blend in. He's saying, is that what you went out to see? A person who would compromise? You didn't find a compromiser. And you know, you didn't find a compromiser because the guy's in prison because he called sin, sin. He didn't buckle under to the pressure. He called sin, sin. I praise God when I think of men and women who are not compromisers. You know, John was out of the mold of Joseph and Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. He was a man that said, I am not compromising what I know to be true, and I don't care if you take everything in this life away from me. You can send me to prison. You can cut off my head. You can throw me in a fiery furnace. You can throw me in a den of lions. I don't care what you do to me because you know what? I am here to please God and not men. Period. I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you will know what the will of God is. I praise God for that judge in Alabama. And I think that we all need to praise God for men like that. And I'll tell you why. Because he didn't sell out. He believed what he was doing was right and it was the will of God. And he said, I don't care if you take my position away from me. I don't care if I lose my $170,000 a year job and my pension at 75% of that amount for life. I'm willing to give it all up because this is greater than that. I'm not selling out. And neither should you or I. We should never sell out. We should never compromise. He said, Did you expect to see a compromise or you didn't find one, did you? John wasn't blowing with the wind. He wasn't bending to public opinion. He wasn't a celebrity, as he said. He wasn't a guy who was all dressed in soft clothing. He didn't behold, you know, you didn't behold those who are splendidly clothed, living in luxury and found in royal palaces. When I read that passage, the first thing I thought of, the first person, was Moses, living in the palaces of Egypt. And he turned it all down and he walked from it because he didn't think that what Egypt had to offer even compared to the city whose foundation and architect is God. And he said, Lord, I'm willing to give it all up to be obedient to you. Are you willing to give up everything to be obedient to God? Are there areas of your life that you're compromising, you're selling out, that you've bought into that bait, that trap that says, oh, you know what, now you're confused. Certainly God's word didn't say that. I praise God. You know, we need guys like John the Baptist today who call sin sin, and they're not worried about paying any price for it. That's just the way that it is. We need to be light and darkness. We need to be a salt that creates a thirst for spiritual things. And you know how you do it? You do it by not compromising, you do it by not selling out. John wasn't a compromiser, John wasn't a celebrity. And Jesus said he was even more than a prophet. Yes, I say to you, and one who is even more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before me. Notice that. He says, I say among men that are born of women, there is no one greater than John. And the beautiful thing is that yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What does that mean? John was, you know, John was a great man of God. John was greater than all the prophets. And the reason that he was is because he introduced Jesus. And when Jesus came to earth, you know, eternity invaded time. When Jesus came to earth, heaven invaded earth. When Jesus came, God had arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. And John was the one who pointed to him. All of time is divided by the presence of Jesus Christ on this earth we relate time to before He came and since He has arrived. And even though there's a movement today to do away with that, all of God's people will dig in firm and hard because you know what? Time has never been the same since Jesus walked the face of the earth. And He is saying is that, and you know what? In all of us who have turned from sin and trusted in Christ as our Savior, His death and His resurrection, and have been born again by God, We are greater in the kingdom of God because we experience something that has never been experienced before Jesus came, and that is this, that God dwells within us. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away. All things become new. My question as I read through this was, wow, you know what? Is Is there a definitive timeline in your life when Jesus... Invaded your life. When Jesus came into your life. When you were born again by God's will. All of human history is recorded in before Jesus. And since then. Is your personal life recorded as before Jesus. And since then. December 17th, 1956. That's when I was born. February 16th, 1978, that's when I was born again. That period of time was before Christ. Since then, it is after Christ. My life is measured in those two timelines. And I forget what lies behind. And I now press on toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Do you have a definitive timeline? Not when you're baptized, not when you start going to church, not when you started going to Bible study, but when you repented of sin and responded by grace through faith to the finished work of Christ. When you believe that Jesus died for your sins and that he rose again and you trusted him as your savior, is your life divided distinctly into before that moment and since? it should be that clear it must be that clear because the God of the universe doesn't change a life without making it obvious to the life that has changed and then to all around who see that life and lastly we come to the condemnation and we'll close on this of the Pharisees and the lawyers by Jesus but if you'll notice in verses 30 through 35 there's the big but and I've always said I'm going to do a series the big butts of the Bible here's another one but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. Notice that they rejected God's truth. They rejected God's counsel. In his condemnation, Jesus points out, you heard the truth, but you rejected God's truth. He also goes on to say, and they reacted. He says, you know what, how can I compare this generation? What are they like? He said, what are people like like that? He says, they're like a bunch of little kids. You notice the reaction. He says they're like a, a little kids in a marketplace and they call to one another and they say, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't weep. What he's saying was that it, a common practice in that they were kids to try to get other kids to do things. They would say, hey, listen, we'll play the flute for you and well, let's dance. And he no, nah, I don't want to play. Oh, we'll, we'll do this. Nah, I don't want to play. I don't know about you, but, I mean, we, we had people like that. You know, they didn't get their way. I don't know if you, you've ever run into this, but, you know, back in the day, you know, we'd be playing basketball or something, and somebody didn't get the position that they wanted, and they'd be like, oh, you know what, I quit. And they'd be like, and I'm taking my ball and going home. <laughs> then they'd be like, oh, 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 let's rethink this. You know, like, oh, wait a minute, but, but we're like that. What he's saying to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, he said, you know what, you are childish, not childlike. And we run into people all the time like that, don't we, folks, who are childish, not like childlike? And what he's saying is this. When John came and preached repentance, you didn't like what he had to say. You're too stuffy. You're not loose. You don't have any joy in life. I'm not attracted to what you have to say. Then Jesus came, joyous, preaching God's love, healing those afflicted, raising the dead. And they said to him, We don't like you either. We don't like the message of repentance. We don't like your message either. We don't like anything. And you know what? And as a result, we refuse to believe anything anybody says. That was their reaction. And you know what? And there's people that are still like that today. Because notice that they refuse to accept John's message of repentance. They refuse to accept Jesus' message of grace and mercy they refused both messages in other words it didn't matter what anybody said to them they were going to refuse to believe they didn't have doubts they were guilty of unbelief you know we see that all the time i mean you run into people like that you know why don't you go to church oh you know what it's just people are too judgmental great well why why don't you go to church well you know what the message is kind of light and fluffy Well, why don't you go to church? Well, Christians, that I've noticed, they're all just so, you know, like baptized in vinegar. They're always walking around talking about judgment, talking about condemnation. It's like, you're going to go to hell. You're going to go to hell. You know, it's like, well, gee, that's attractive. And then you got the other person goes, hey, you know, just, you you know, it's like there's always an excuse to not consider God's truth. And that's what Jesus was pointing out to them. Their refusal to believe in closing revealed their lack of wisdom. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her children. Who is the wise person? The wise person who hears the truth of God's message and responds accordingly. Who is the wise person? The one who listens with an open mind and an open heart. The one who when they hear that, you know what, they're not perfect, they're sinners, they go, yeah, that's true. The one who hear that, you know what, because of sin, we will be held accountable by God. To go, that makes sense because, you know what, all my life when I do wrong things, I'm held accountable by human authority. How much more so should I be held accountable by God? I say, yeah, that's a good point. Well, what's the answer? Hey, but you know what, God loves you anyway. And he sent Christ to die for you. And the answer is that if you would trust that Jesus paid the price for you, for your sin, that you don't have to answer or be accountable to God because Jesus did it all. He died on the cross for you. He rose again from the dead. He is alive today to offer forgiveness because the greatest need that we have isn't more money, isn't a better marriage, isn't our health. Our greatest need is God's forgiveness. And if you will trust in Him and receive Him as your Savior, you will be a child of God to those who believe in His name. For God so loved the world that we sang today For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God gives us empirical evidence. He gives us scriptural evidence. And the greatest evidence that God gives to the world are the changed lives of men and women who have come to trust Jesus as their Savior. May we walk in a manner that is not compromising to that truth, so that all when they see our life as light and salt are attracted to the only one who can save them from their sins and the consequence of it, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you that at times when we are confused that we know that you are not a God of confusion and that you tell us to come to you and seek wisdom. We thank you that you are there to give it to us generously and beyond reproach. God, I pray that we would continue to come to you and that we would trust you, that we would believe your word and we would not fall trap, into the trap or the snare of unbelief, that we will recognize that you do things the way you do it. Your thoughts are higher than ours. Your ways are not our ways. But at the same time, you reveal what those ways are to us so that we may know and follow you in obedience. I pray for all that are here today or hearing these words that have never trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for the forgiveness of their sins, that they would do so now, that they would recognize their own guilt before you, and that they would turn from sin and turn to you, trusting in Jesus Christ, His death on the cross, and the power of His resurrection on their behalf, that they would be forgiven as they bow their knee to you. God, we thank you that the evidence is overwhelming in the lives of those who are truly born again, that all things have passed away, all things become new, that if any man's in Christ, he's a new creature, old things are done. God, we look forward to how you will continue to lead us in this life. We praise you in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.